are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are The Addiction Doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to this episode of The Addiction Files. We are really excited. We have Dr. Marcella Smid joining us this evening to discuss substance use disorder in pregnancy. And Paula is going to introduce her for us. All right. Yay. We're so excited to have Marcella. We're so lucky. Marcella, MD, MA, MS, is a board certified maternal fetal medicine and addiction medicine physician at the University of Utah. She is the medical director of the Substance Use and Pregnancy Recovery Addiction Dependence, otherwise known as SuperRAD, specialty prenatal clinic and OB Aramid, a dedicated perinatal transport service here in Utah. She was also an NIH K-12 Women's Reproductive Health Research Program Scholar, and Marcella's research focus is on perinatal addiction, care models for pregnant women and postpartum women with substance use disorders, maternal mortality, and maternal mental health. And just kind of off, like off professional bio record. Marcella is all things pregnancy and addiction and the founder of SuperRad Clinic here in Utah. And I remember very clearly the very first meeting that you called to develop SuperRad Clinic because I was lucky enough to somehow be at that meeting. And you were like, we need this clinic and this is what we need. And then like three months later, the clinic was there and it's it was just incredible, the rollout. So the community here in Utah has benefited so much from that. And now you have clinics in two places, right? Tell us a little bit about that. We do. So thank you for um, the invitation. I'm really excited to be here and always excited to talk about my favorite topic, um, substance use and pregnancy. That meeting that Paul is referring to, I can tell you exactly, it was May of 2017. And it was with my co-director and co-founder, Jasmine Charles, who's um, a PA, and she is um, holding down the fort um, while I've been on maternity leave for the last three months. But we met with Paula and with Elizabeth Howe, who's um, also addiction medicine, and she, well, she's addiction psychiatry. And we asked for support with our, with addiction specialist, because at that point I wasn't addiction medicine certified. And we started the clinic in August of 2017 with Anna Holtai, who is one of the addiction medicine faculty. She was our first fellow, and that was when we opened our doors. We're a multidisciplinary integrated clinic. We take care of any pregnant or postpartum woman up to a year postpartum with any substance use disorder. We do also take care of women with opioid dependence because of our neonatal support. We are one of the only hospitals in the state that's able to do rooming in, which is one of the most evidence-based approaches for neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome, which I'm sure we'll talk a lot about on on our podcast. And we provide really integrated care. Um, We have We've grown tremendously over the years, both in our patient population, as well as our research um, opportunities that we can offer our our patients. We have um, numerous studies that we're enrolling because we really need a better, we need better evidence-based care models for our pregnant and postpartum women. So we often say that we do, we don't necessarily do evidence-based care. We do evidence-informed care because a lot of times there's just not evidence for what we do. It's not that we go against the evidence. It's just that there is an absence of evidence for a lot of what we do. 
And so it's often evidence informed. And then we have also grown tremendously in the clinical things that we're able to provide for our patients. So social work, we have resource management, we have peer recovery support specialists that are integrated in the clinic, and that's all grown over the years. And it's been a tremendous journey. And we're just so privileged to to take care of these women. And we've, we've started to see our second and third pregnancies with some of our moms. So we're really, um, we're really lucky and privileged to see women on this journey and it's really the the trust that they they give us to help them through this journey and to to really guide us through their journey and that the greatest um, compliment they give us is that they come back to us that's so amazing so you take care of patients or we take care of women all throughout their pregnancies and a year postpartum is that pretty typical in i mean i know for regular ob it's six weeks in maternal fetal medicine do you take care of people prolonged in a prolonged way like that? Or is this just a a model that you've kind of come up with because of the need for ongoing care for this particular population? So that is a fantastic question. Um, And I would love to answer it for both both general OB as well and NMFM and and for women with substance use disorders. So so the reason that we picked a year postpartum is that there's pretty um, good evidence and, and really increasingly mounting evidence that that year postpartum is a critical time for, for women with substance use disorders. So one of the things that I do, I sit on the Maternal Mortality Review Committee here in Utah, and we've published some data and it's not, you know, we, we've published this data, but other states have also published this data that substance use is now one of the leading causes of death for women in pregnancy and in the year postpartum. And it's really that critical, it's a critical time. And it's often after that six week, that crit- that six week period, right? That you, you go to your OB for your postpartum check as somebody who's just recently six weeks postpartum. I like, I used to say before I was, I had that experience on myself, myself, but also even more now is if you can get out of the house with your pants on at six weeks, you are a hero in my book. And it is the same thing for um, pregnant women with addiction especially if they have any other um, coexisting mental health conditions. There's just all these things that just the stress of having a newborn, sleep, um, postpartum depression, even if there wasn't pre-existing mental health conditions, um, the exacerbation of relationships, the exacerbation on or the strain on social support that a newborn puts, all of those things are kind of that perfect storm. And when you add that in with substance use disorders, you're really coming up with a, a situation where many women fall um, back into substance use for a variety of reasons may lead to their death. And we're, like I said, we're, le- we're seeing that that is the leading cause of, it's the most common cause of death for pregnant and postpartum women, both in Utah and also around the country. So that's why we picked a year postpartum. For women in general, I mean, I'll use this as an opportunity to say, I think we're rethinking the way that we approach the postpartum period in general. And the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine both endorse that really it's the postpartum period is much longer than six weeks. And then especially for women who have any complication may require longer and even without complications, longer support because things like postpartum depression, anxiety, PTSD just from the birth may not even show up 
until later on. So we're really reconceptualizing the idea of that postpartum care. And for pregnant women with any addiction, it's so important. I mean, the pregnancy part we, we like to joke is the easy part, right? That's the part where women will do, mostly will do things on their own without us, but it's that postpartum period where I think we're, we're, we're truly missing opportunities for intervention. Wow, that's so interesting and it's so true. And then, so you, so after the year period, you refer people to some kind of a medical home. I'm, I'm guessing, exactly. and I kind of know. <laughs> exactly. Um, and part of that, right. So we would, we would absolutely love to keep everybody, right. We, um, we would love to keep them forever and ever and ever, but from a, we only have two days, right. And we have a limited number of providers. And so in order to keep access open for pregnant and that year postpartum and to establish long-term care, um, we, we provide referrals and try to do really in all cases a warm handoff. Brilliant. So Marcella, tell us like what most of our listeners are, you know, generalists, people trying to get a better handle of addiction, uh, learners, family medicine folks, addiction medicine folks, like what, if you could just say anything to medical students, residents, generalists, like you want to impart your greatest pearls right off the bat. And then we can talk about some other topics like urine drug screening during pregnancy and SBIRT and custody or like DCFS kind of things like more gritty details. First of all, like what would you say are the most important concepts or principles of taking care of pregnant and parenting women who have a substance use disorder? So um, one, I will say that we'll start with right, de definitions. Um, so substance use disorders, um, as this audience will most likely know, right, is that you really need that compulsion. It's not enough to be use. It's got to be use that's uncontrolled and compulsive and leading to some kind of adverse consequence. So for pregnant women, 80% of pregnant women will either, for any substance, whether that is nicotine or alcohol or heroin or cocaine or methamphetamine, 80% will either completely stop or will substantially cut down their use. And by really by the second trimester, and we sort of use 20 weeks, so by kind of your anatomy ultrasound, if you want to use a sort of a landmark, if someone hasn't stopped use by that point for whatever substance, it, it's consider, it's not part of the diagnostic criteria, but those of us in perinatal addiction consider that pathognomonic for a substance use disorder. So if someone is still smoking at 20 weeks, that's, that's a nicotine use disorder. If someone is still using heroin at, at 20 weeks, that is really a pathognomonic of a substance use disorder. It doesn't mean that if they've stopped use, they don't necessarily have a substance use disorder, but that continued use because it because all women are concerned about their babies. All women really do recognize that for the most part, these substances aren't optimal for both maternal health and for, for fetal well-being. So that's pearl number one. Number two, actually, I want to say that's pearl number Number one A, one B is in that postpartum period, 80% of women will have a return to use for at least one substance. And so it's really that postpartum period where that return to use is critical. And that's why that year postpartum is so important. Second pearl really is that addiction care in pregnancy is addiction care. You know, we really, really discourage people, for example, for opioid use disorder, mainstays of treatment, methadone, buprenorphine with or without behavioral treatment for whatever that, you know, whatever that works for that person, that is the mainstay of treatment in pregnancy. And things that I think are well-intentioned, but often incredibly destabilizing are things like recommending 
tapering methadone or buprenorphine for perceived neonatal benefit. And so really the recommendation both by ACOG and SMFM and ASAM is to continue, for example, medication for opioid use disorder throughout the pregnancy and not to taper. And one of the biggest um, misconceptions is that you are um, reducing the risk to the neonate by reducing the dose. And that is doesn't turn out to be true. So we don't really understand how how that works, but that's why we need to do research because we don't understand the the me- the true mechanisms, but it's um, certainly not dose related. So again, this, uh, pearl B to, or pearl 2 is addiction care and pregnancy is addiction care. And then three, say for you touched upon it with um, child protective services and DCFS. So certainly in Utah, and we're um, lucky enough that in Utah, our reg- our laws um, have recently changed to really reflect that substance use alone, in and of itself, is, is not does not equate to child endangerment or child neglect or child abuse. And so it's the requirement for re- referral in Utah is really substance use. A provider is required to refer somebody who is either pre- or who is parenting once there's a child with substance use if there's evidence of impairment of care of self or a dependent other. And I think that's really the what what those institutions are meant for, right? So we we all understand that child protective services is something that we need as a safety net, but really that should be reserved for people who have evidence that they're not being able to take care of themselves or somebody else for whatever reason, and that substance use alone is not a reason to refer, and that punitive public policies do the at while I think most legislators and policymakers do things much like tapering medications, right? They're well-intentioned, but they're not well-informed. So people make these policies because they believe them to be protective of families and, and children. But truly the opposite ends up being the the reality is that the more punitive your um, policies are, including criminalization um, and prosecution of women for these for substance use in pregnancy, really drive people underground and drive them away from what we what we want, which is treatment, and to be able to provide them with wraparound resources, support, parenting support, parenting classes, what have you, housing those types of things. I could not agree more. I think that is just so true. And Marcella, correct me if I'm wrong, because I think I learned this a long time ago, and I can't remember the source. But is there any data that showed if you attempt tapering, particularly in the first or second trimester, you have an increased risk of miscarriage? I'm so glad you asked that question, because I just finished writing a huge chapter on substance use and pregnancy. So I've never been smarter on this topic than right at this moment. So the answer to that is in the literature, you will see that repeated, that exactly that in that tapering, any kind of opioid increases the risk of miscarriage and stillbirth. The reality of that is that it's those are statements are based on really limited case reports. So it's really three, three case reports. And so, and I say that because I think we have to contextualize that we, there's really not very good, strong evidence that tapering or or withdrawing increases that miscarriage or stillbirth risk. And that's for two reasons, right? So if it's one, if you have a, a woman who is you know in the throes of severe opioid use disorder and she's withdrawing all the time because she's got, you know, she's she's 
severe, right? She has severe tolerance. She's withdrawing. And then she has a miscarriage or a stillbirth. That doesn't mean that that caused the miscarriage or stillbirth. So both, for, for, so from a patient perspective, we have to we have to also say that those case reports. That's not enough. I mean, that's real. That's pretty not robust evidence, right? That to support these, but you'll see it repeated in the literature that tapering or opioid withdrawal is associated with miscarriage and stillbirth. So I think going back to the primary literature, it's it's not good evidence, it's case reports. And so for, for women who are going through that, reminding them that there really isn't evidence that they, it is the fault of them of the opioid use disorder and going through withdrawal. So I think that's number one. Number two, there are some women for whom tapering is the right choice and they're really, they are well counseled, they're very motivated, things are stable, their life is stable, and they want to attempt to taper. Um, so I think that is a reasonable approach. What we worry about, particularly with opioid use disorder, is you know, no no one's suggesting tapering heroin, right? But you want to taper somebody that's on, for example, if oxycodone is there, they have prescription oxycodone, you want to taper that, or even they want to taper their buprenorphine or their their methadone. If that's something that they're highly motivated to do. I, we, we shouldn't be counseling them that there's a risk of miscarriage or, or stillbirth. I think the thing that we need to counsel about is there's really a risk of destabilization of mom, right? And that often in pregnancy, particularly with pregnancy, we often see a dose increase just because of the, of the, meta- so now I'm going to talk about, let's say methadone or buprenorphine, right? So if you're, if you have a mom that's um, considering tapering, which we would say that's our population-based statement is that tapering is is not advised because the population of women with with opioid use disorder we see is that uh, there's evidence for destabilization and return to use but for each individual woman right we say i don't i know about women like you but i don't know exactly what's going to happen to you so the counseling really is about making sure that they are in a place where that's what's, you know, they're able to taper preparation that often we're going, we're doing the opposite. We're increasing dose because the physiology of pregnancy metabolizes that dose. And they're, they may feel even more withdrawal and, and more uncomfortable in combination with the, the symptoms of misery of pregnancy, if you will. So that's the counseling that we do. It's not so much miscarriage and stillbirth as maternal destabilization. And if you have a patient who's very motivated to taper, do you instigate taper at trimester specific? Is there any evidence that it's better at later or earlier in, in pregnancy? That's a great question. So I would say it there is not evidence that it, there is an ideal time to taper. So the evidence that we have which is, you know, meta-analyses of data of case reports, case series, and even cohort studies that tapering, and we don't have any randomized control trials, that, that has yet to be done. And I will be surprised if we ever have that. We, there's, no, there's no evidence that one, that any time point is better than, than another. What I would counsel somebody is that really the do is have a really um, in-depth conversation and that's going to take longer than 10 minutes, right? So starting with, are you, are you set up to have that conversation? Because that's not going to be a 10 minute like in and out appointment, right? So that's a at least half hour, 40 minute appointment to really talk about what are your goals? How would you want to do this? What do you most commonly, and not for everybody, but most commonly it's the risk of neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome that most moms are worried about. They're worried about their babies with, and they're worried about the effects on the baby. So I can say in fetal period, what we know is that there are likely 
not detrimental effects to the point where we we can't say that they're like, for example, alcohol, right? There's a clear out fetal alcohol syndrome. There's a clear teratogenicity of alcohol. Opioids don't have that. Methamphetamine doesn't have that. Methadone or buprenorphine, if somebody wants to taper, really listening, what is the goal? And most commonly it's, I don't want my baby to go through withdrawal. And then the next thing is a piece of, is an opportunity for education. So many, both providers and patients think that if I'm on any opioids, my baby is going to withdraw. Like that is, and that's not necessarily true. So the chance really is 30 to 50% depending, right? So what, and what do I, what do I mean by depending? So depending is on an, if there's any other substance. So for example, one of the most evidence-based things that we know is that, that nicotine actually increases the risk of babies withdrawing. We often say, if you're going to focus on a, on a substance, it's actually tobacco, which 80% of women with opioid use disorder have a co-occurring nicotine use disorder. And while many women think that they need to focus on decreasing their buprenorphine or their methadone dose, we say focus on your nicotine, right? It's the if you can decrease your risk of decrease your cigarettes and stop smoking cigarettes or whatever form of nicotine you, your vapor, you know, there's lots of different ways of nic of getting nicotine these days. That's actually going to give you way more bang for your buck and is less likely to destabilize you than focusing on the the dose of buprenorphine and methadone. So you can, there's a really nice calculator and I can send the link for, as you put in um, NAS risk Vanderbilt, you can set up different little, you know, how, how, what gestational age does a boy or girl, what their estimated weight is, hepatitis C feeds into it and then number of cigarettes. And you can really see, you can slide it back and forth. And I've used it with, with patients where you can see if, you know, if you're on this dose or if you're on a, it's, it's not dose specific, but if you're on any long acting, let's say, opioid, but you slide that cigarette all the way down to zero, you may decrease your risk by 10, 20%. Opportunity for education there, right? And then the third component is if they're real, you know, if you got to check and make sure their social life and social situation is stable, right? So if there's, if there, if this is somebody who is struggling with housing, if this is somebody whose relation, you know, they have interpersonal or inner uh, intimate partner violence that's happening in their relationship, they're unemployed, you know, things that are causing them significant social stress, tapering their buprenorphine in that situation, just what pregnant or not, right? That not the ideal time to do it because any social stress is going to make that process even worse and even harder on moms. So really having an opportunity to talk about that. And then if moms are really motivated to taper, then we try and we do it really slowly. There's not, we tend to say something like, you know, 10, at 10% a week, um, but that is arbitrary and it's whatever works for them. And often I will say, if you're really motivated to do it, let's have you come up with a plan that you think works for you. And then we'll set up weekly appointments and doesn't have to be in person, right? We can do, especially now post COVID, one of the best things, right? Is that many people are set up to do virtual visits. So it might be a phone call or a virtual visit to check in. And we've done very long, slow tapers because that's what people want to try. And if, and if women want to try and it doesn't work, then okay, it didn't work. Then we'll just, we'll increase the dose go back up and that's okay. Spent a lot of time talking about taper, right? But that the, that the, if you really get to the heart of it and reassure women that they're not causing their babies harm, that's often what the, the kernel, uh, right, is, is that nobody wants to cause their, their child harm. Once you get to, to that and you say, well, what's more harmful is 
you're distressed. And if moms are distressed, that's not good for them. And that's not good for their babies. Also along that lines, Marcella, I find I'm frequently having to advocate for my patients. So I'm, I'm farther away. So my patients don't get to be in your clinic. So they're usually I'm treating their addiction, and then they're seeing an outside OB who doesn't Mm -hmm. really have much training with addiction. It's frequently the breastfeeding, I have to tell patients, it's okay to breastfeed, and then they're getting these mixed messages. Can you tell us about breastfeeding with medications for opioid use disorder? I would love to. So one of the strongest pieces of evidence that we have in this evidence-informed, not evidence-based world, but really this is evidence-based, is that breastfeeding is actually one of the best interventions to both prevent neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome or NOWS and to decrease the need for Medicaid, even if somebody does develop, a baby does does develop some symptoms to decrease the need for medications and for length of stay in the hospital. And then you get all of the other benefits of breastfeeding. I don't necessarily need to espouse upon, but there's maternal and infant bonding. We do have some evidence that folks with addictions, part because this is a brain condition, right, may have some, may need longer to, to bond for those parts of our brains to really bond with their with their child and what better way than to promote breastfeeding right and that's one and that's both for mom's brain and for babies and it's not necessarily just the breast milk right it's the process of doing it so even trying is very helpful and I often say to to moms you know even just having the baby on the breast trying to latch right sometimes you need to supplement with formula but that process and that skin to skin and really going going through the process of attempting breastfeeding in and of itself is beneficial. Two, two other points to breastfeeding. So we know with opioid use disorder, just like with every, like with the rest of the population, hepatitis C is kind of the syndemic that we're having. So there's hepatitis C and, and opioid use disorder. There's a lot of misinformation about hepatitis C being a contraindication to breastfeeding. It is not. So it is it is okay to breastfeed with hepatitis C. Counseling would then include really, you know, you really got to watch out for cracked nipples and bleeding. And if, if that does happen, then you pump and dump and you don't breastfeed on that side and you wait for the nipples to heal. And then the other point is return to use, right, is part of this condition. The anticipatory guidance is really, we recommend that if somebody has a return to use, so either her- whatever use, um, heroin use, methamphetamine use, um, that they don't breastfeed during that time and they pump and dump during that time. You know, wait for kind of the, this, this is now evidence-informed not evidence-based that we think that it's about the same time for clearance as urine and breast milk can be, urine tax can be used sort of as a proxy for clearance. It's not exact. And that is based on very limited data for moms to think about if they have a return to use. It's not necessarily the substance for per se. It's also the circumstances around the use. So for example, infectious disease, right? So if somebody has a return to use and they're utilizing needles or especially if they're sharing needles, counseling that they want to make sure that they don't have, they haven't acquired HIV in that time period, right? We would want to treat and prevent HIV transmission. Um, but breastfeeding in general, the particularly with medications for opioid use disorder, it is one of the most evidence-based approaches that we can promote to our patients. Can you speak to pregnant women and parenting slash breastfeeding women with the use of cannabis? Because so, it seems like that's kind of a question. growing area of controversy, Huge right? Area. More and more cannabis availability. Yeah. Just tell Absolutely. us what your, what your approach is for both of those groups. And- so highly controversial. So what I would say is with 
cannabis use. So for, I'll start with pregnancy, right? So what we know about pregnancy and cannabis use is that most women who are using cannabis in pregnancy are using it to treat some kind of symptom. There are some women who continue recreational use that I would say it's to feel good, right? The best evidence that we have is that they're either using it to treat nausea and vomiting, pregnancy, or depression and anxiety. So some kind of underlying mood disorder. That's the majority of women continuing use in pregnancy. And there's increasing evidence that women perceive cannabis products are safer than the options that we have, than the the things that are uh, approved for that use. Number one is why are you using cannabis, right? What what is the underlying reason? So like I said, most women will stop use or decrease use of most substances in pregnancy. Cannabis may be the exception, but it may be because there's a perception that it's safer than, for example, an SSRI to treat depression or to treat anxiety. So having that conversation of, of why somebody is um, utilizing it. Number two, so the fetal effects, I will summarize growing body of literature as conflicting, right? So it's very, so any perinatal outcome, whether it be low birth weight, or preterm delivery or even neurodevelopmental effects is that there's really controversial evidence and that the evidence is confounded by things like nicotine use, poverty, social stigma of this use, and probably that we have some ascertainment bias that we don't know everyone that's using it because it's an illegal substance in many places, and at least it continues to be federally illegal. When talking to patients about use in pregnancy, what I often say, follow me on this, um, on my counseling is I will say, how do you, I will start and I will give you my actual counseling. I will say, I will start and say, let's talk about cannabis use in pregnancy. How do you make pot brownies? And then they give me this look like, what? Why are you asking me that question? I'm like, just go with me. Why do you make pot? How do you make pot brownies? And they go, um, you melt the butter. I'm like, yes. And do you know why you melt the butter? And they're like, mm, well, that's what you put the you know cannabis in and, or let's say usually marijuana, um, to, and, and that's how you get it. And I'm like, yes, because it binds to fat. And one of the things that you do to build a baby is you build a baby with fatty acids. The best evidence that we have is that it's at least controversial and that there may be some effects and that the evidence that we have is 20 years old. When I was in high school, 1999 marijuana, not to, you know, not 2021 cannabis, which has super high concentrations of THC and especially in things like vaping, right? That those things may not be comparable and that there may really be a dose effect and that even if they're not storing it, it may be preferentially storing in their baby's brain because it by, that's how you build a baby's brain is by fat. And that, so I say, I can't tell you that that there's adverse effects, but what I can tell you is there's at least biological plausibility that especially with today's, the products that are available today, we may be in a situation where we're going to see those things, but we're going to see them 20 years down the line because we, it's too early to tell. So that's the counseling about pregnancy and, and cannabis uses. I say, I can't, I'm not going to tell you it's safe because I don't, I think there's at least enough biological plausibility to say that it is not ideal, right? And let's talk about how, why are you using it and can we address those things in other ways. And I can at least tell you, I will have better data on those things. So that's 
pregnant individuals. Lactating individuals, there is, again, there's increasing evidence that breast milk may, because of the fat, may actually concentrate the THC. And so it's it's yet another one of those, well, I wouldn't advise it. I would advise against it. But what I advise, so then the question is, would I advise against breastfeeding in the setting of cannabis use? No. So I think that's it. So I, I want to be very clear. I don't advise lactating individuals that it is okay to, to breastfeed when they're um, utilizing cannabis in the sense that it is better to breastfeed without cannabis use, right? But if someone's telling me I'm going to utilize cannabis for whatever reason that they use, would I tell them to stop breastfeeding? No, because I think the benefits of breastfeeding are so well shown and the risk of breastfeeding with cannabis use is still highly controversial that I would not take something that we know has demonstrable benefits and tell them to stop doing stop doing it because of something we don't know of the harm. That makes so much sense. So what about, okay, I just keep, I'm throwing more categories, but alcohol in pregnancy and the approach to management. And obviously I think it's really clear that we, as a medical community, and even as a society, we've kind of come to recognize alcohol as a teratogen and not acceptable in pregnancy. Are there any specific, well, I'm always interested in how you manage alcohol withdrawal syndrome and pregnant women? And then do you have any other kind of tips or pearls for helping women who maybe have an alcohol use disorder manage their alcohol use during pregnancy? And what medications for alcohol cravings can you use in this period? Yet another great question that I would love to answer. Alcohol use disorder. So I think we have to be really clear here about alcohol use and alcohol use disorder in pregnancy. And I think especially for alcohol, we need to really distinguish those two. So alcohol use in pregnancy, I think there's increasing evidence that many women may use some amount of alcohol in pregnancy, even through the third trimester. I'm going to be contradictory to what I said before, that even in third trimester, any alcohol use does not necessarily mean that there's an alcohol use disorder. I think you have to really, let's say you go to a wedding and have a glass of champagne, right? I don't mean to suggest that somebody that has a, and is pregnant, even in the third trimester necessarily has an alcohol use disorder if they have a glass of champagne. But if they're having alcohol use and there's no there's no exact amount, so you have to d- dig a little bit deeper, but not just really episodic, you know, rare use, then that may be more pathognomonic of an alcohol use disorder in pregnancy. So alcohol use, we should be counseling women that there's really no known safe amount, right? And so we have to flip that and say, we can't say that heavy use is gonna lead to fetal alcohol syndrome or moderate use or or light use. We just don't know. And we know that there is some genetic susceptibility to fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, right? So fetal alcohol syndrome really has very specific criteria. We have to meet both growth problems. There are facial dysmorphic features that children have to meet, and then also developmental or neurocognitive problems. So it's not something that you can diagnose either prenatally or really even at birth as a developmental thing. And those have very strict criteria, but there's this broader criteria of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, that there may be some neurodevelopmental effects or even some physical features, the whole bundle of all three criteria. 
that alcohol may be the the cause of, you know, stop drinking by 20 weeks, then you're not at risk of that. Or you stop drinking by six weeks, you're not at risk of that. We just don't have that data. So really the the counseling should be that there's no, there's truly no safe amount of alcohol in pregnancy. For alcohol use disorder, right? So really going through and, ma- and doing the diagnostic criteria that any, that you would do with anybody with or without pregnancy is, is there compulsive use? Is there uncontrolled use? Is it leading to adverse consequences? That's those same criteria is how you would diagnose alcohol use disorder in pregnancy. In terms of how you manage it, so acute withdrawal, you manage acute withdrawal the same exact way that you would you would manage it outside of pregnancy. So one of the, there are new guidelines um, that ASAM just put out about alcohol management. In there, you can offer pregnant women with moderate alcohol withdrawal, so a CUA score of greater than 10, should be offered inpatient management. And that can um, help. So you if you would manage somebody inpatient if they were not pregnant, you certainly should manage them inpatient if they're pregnant. And then anyone who has moderate, at least moderate withdrawal should be managed, um, should be offered management inpatient. And that can certainly help with billing, right? So sometimes there's why, why does this person need to be inpatient? Well, if they meet those, they might not meet criteria outside of pregnancy, but in pregnancy, they may meet criteria for inpatient management. And you would manage it exactly the same way that you would manage it. So you, the benzodiazepines, we've often gotten um, very well-meaning phone calls from addiction specialists who are like, well, I looked it up and it can cause cleft lip and palate, right? And we're like, alcohol withdrawal, life-threatening condition, right? You Life-threatening condition and often cleft lip and palate, if it's going to happen, that's happened usually six to nine weeks of pregnancy. And we're often seeing women after that. But really the principle of this is a life threatening condition that needs to be managed in the same way that you would manage it outside of pregnancy. Once you get past that alcohol withdrawal, I mean the, the next principle, same thing outside of pregnancy, you really need to get somebody connected to an outpatient treatment plan, right? So it's not enough to get them over that. What are we going to do outpatient? Either behavioral health medications, often 12-step programs are very helpful. So that same approach, right? So it's not enough to get past the alcohol withdrawal inpatient detox, as I put my, I'm, I'm waving, I'm making air quotes in the air podcast. So I have to say I'm air quoting detox, right? So once you get past that, really finding an outpatient provider and an outpatient provider that ideally has some comfort and knowledge about treating pregnant women, because I think people get very, again, well-meaning, but get very worried about the teratogenetic or potential effects of the medication. You have to remember, what are we comparing this to, right? So untreated alcohol use disorder, the return to use rate incredibly high, right? We know that alcohol is uh, is very bad for fetal development and it's very bad for maternal well-being in the setting of alcohol use disorder. So we really need to make sure that the comparison is not to somebody who does not have alcohol use disorder, that the comparison has to be, you know, that if you're thinking about any of the medications for alcohol use disorder, I'll use um, naltrexone, for example, right? We have limited information, but increasing information that it is likely very safe in pregnancy and in comparison to what, right? The comparison group has to be untreated alcohol use disorder. The question I would posit to the um, an addiction medicine provider is to say, do you think this is somebody that will really... Can 
can benefit from behavioral health, but would they truly benefit from a medication to prevent cravings like naltrexone, for example? And we know that there are 6,000 babies born a year with fetal alcohol syndrome, and that's probably an underestimate. And that is the same number of babies that are born with Down syndrome per year, but we can't prevent Down syndrome, but we can prevent fetal alcohol syndrome, right? There is a, that's a modifiable thing. And if you can prevent uh, return to use with naltrexone, for example, you should do that. And so we certainly offer that with the understanding that there's limited evidence, but there is increasing evidence that it is a safe medication to use both in opioid use disorder and in alcohol use disorder. For the other um, medications, so like diselfiram, right? We don't, that's not a great medication outside of pregnancy, right? It doesn't fit with our understanding of the neurocognitive pathways of addiction. It's not a particularly effective medication outside of pregnancy, probably not an effective medication in pregnancy. So I wouldn't say that should not be your first line. And then in a camprosate, same, it's sort of the same thing. It's if that's an effective, if someone has been on a camprosate and that is an effective medication for them outside of pregnancy, and that's what's kept them stable, then we should continue that, right? Because usually people that are on even especially if it's pre existing, right? If they're on that medication before and they've gone through everything and that's the thing that keeps them stable, keep on keeping on. We had a terrible kind of case at one of the, at the hospital where this pregnant patient was taken off her naltrexone in her third trimester. I think she presented to prenatal care late and she was on naltrexone, not for alcohol use disorder, but for opioid use disorder. And she had been stable. It's the first time in her life she had really been stable. And her and I'm sure well-meaning obstetrician took her off of naltrexone and she had some other psychosocial stressors like a lot of pregnant women do and she returned to use like two weeks before her baby was born and it just sent this whole domino effect of more social effects and guilt and shame and stigma and oh it was just it's just so unfortunate so concept of just keep on keeping on I think that's that's just that's really important and I'll make comments so just for that I so sometimes it's about fetal benefit, right? But sometimes there's this concern about pain management, especially with naltrexone. So what I'll say about, and again, it's almost always well-meaning, right? So people take people off of of naltrexone, usually because they're very well-meaning and they're trying to mitigate some other thing that they're, you know, either fetal or even maternal benefit and and pain management, especially if somebody um, doesn't have a lot of experience with managing folks through naltrexone, they'd be, be very concerned about, pain management. And so with any delivery, right, we can't ever say that it's going to be a vaginal delivery. So the mainstay of uh, pain management after a vaginal delivery really should be NSAIDs, ibuprofen, Tylenol, and supportive care. So we we know that we over-prescribe, especially in the United States, after vaginal delivery. For C-sections and walking into a a U.S. hospital, you have a 20% chance of of needing a C-section in the best of cases. So you always have to at least think about pain management. And that's why if you have someone that has complex pain issues, having an anesthesia consult, and again, mo- many anesthesia folks don't necessarily have experience with managing on naltrexone, but you can really maximize with NSAIDs, the combination of Tordal, Tylenol that is scheduled, and a epidural, what we use, we have an opioid sparing protocol at the, the University of Utah that we're happy to share with, with folks. It's again, evidence-informed, not evidence-based. So we have an approach where we really try to avoid 
medications that primarily use the mu receptor for that reason. And that's for anybody on any medication for opioid use disorder, whether that's methadone, buprenorphine, or even naltrexone. And we can utilize things like an epidural that stays in for up to 24 hours, NSAIDs. And then we've started to use a low-dose ketamine drip at the U to manage breakthrough pain. And so with that, and we've had several women on naltrexone get through it. And we have to, you have to have counseling that, you know, any, never going to be no pain, right? There's no, there's no situation in which a human exits your body without there being pain. And um, that it's really managing the, ex, you know, expectations that we're, we're, we want you to be able to get up, go to the bathroom, hold your baby, breastfeed, be able to bond with your baby. But there's, but there will be pain and that the expectation is that you're not, a t- you know, it's not uncontrolled pain. And that with those, with a multimodal approach, we really can manage that pain. I am very privileged to work at the University of Utah where we have we have that and we've continuously built that. Not every hospital has that and the, the overwhelming majority don't have that comfort. And so either community, if you're really worried about somebody referring for pain management is something that we certainly accept at the U, we'll, we'll take people just for the delivery part to be able to offer that. And then if that's not a, an option or you know, there's plenty of reasons why people want to deliver at the hospital that's closest to them, we can certainly advise on what our, um, but it's a lot of work on part of the provider to get all those providers coordinated and to, for providers to do something that they're not necessarily used to doing. And there's lots of, you know, provider barriers and then tons of system barriers, right, to implementing that. So from a systems perspective, we really need to be advocating for research that understands how to manage pain with folks who have opioid use disorder or on medications for opioid use disorder and how to manage and how to how to implement that in all of our hospitals. I think that is fantastic that it's possible that you're doing it. And it's I absolutely think, possible. Yeah. And on that note, you talked about, you know, naltrexone in pregnancy. What about these patients like Paula's unfortunate patient, patients who are already on naltrexone in pregnancy for opioid use disorder? Keep on keeping on. Exactly. So I, I mean, this frequently happens that they are taken off and there is, there is so much, there is more evidence. I've seen several studies now that have come out supporting it's not showing harms. And I think that's, I think that message needs to get out there. Right. And in comparison to untreated. Yeah, exactly. Right. Okay. And then tell us, what do you counsel patients who are just coming into treatment on medications for opioid use disorder, buprenorphine versus methadone? Great question. What we start with is what has worked for you before? Often people have, have experienced they know what works for them. We're like, pretend that the pregnancy doesn't exist at the moment. Tell me what your experience has been on on methadone. Tell me what your experience has been on with buprenorphine. And sometimes the experience with buprenorphine may not be in a, right, may not be a prescribed. They may be buying it off the street. We know that happens a lot. And so then we go through that, you know, what's what's been successful, what's not been successful. And then sometimes we'll elicit from that buprenorphine precipitating. Well, buprenorphine makes me feel worse. And then we talk about, well, did you precip there a possibility that you precipitated withdrawal? And that's why you think that buprenorphine doesn't work for you. We, we walk through that. And if it's a question of if somebody is on methadone and they've been stable on methadone and they're doing fine on methadone, we absolutely counsel keep on keeping on. Same thing, right? Same same uh, same adage as before. Keep on keeping on that we would not recommend necessarily switching. So from a population perspective, what um, studies that we have and we actually have the mother trial, one of the few RCTs that we actually have in perinatal addiction was 
uh, really well done um, randomized controlled trial multi-center run by Andre Jones, who's one of the pillars of perinatal addiction in our field. They randomized um, women um, who had opioid use disorder to methadone and buprenorphine. This was the mono product. The primary outcome was neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome. So we have, always have to remember that it, this was the outcome was a neonatal outcome. They found was that buprenorphine was associated with 0.3 relative risk of neonatal opioid, which are really they in that paper, it's NAS, it's NAS, it's neonatal abstinence syndrome. So the counseling that we usually say is if you're going to compare the medications head to head, the best evidence that we have is that it de- it is associated, buprenorphine is decreases the likelihood of neonatal abstinence syndrome and is also associated with less uh, need for medication treatments of morphine for the neonate and a shorter hospital stay. However, so we always couch that with, there are many things that the study didn't look at for mom, right? What what was the return to use rate for moms? What was the, you know, what were moms able to get to a methadone clinic? Um, these were all moms that were picked because they agreed that they either would get methadone an outpatient treatment facility or they had ready access to, to buprenorphine. So I think you have to take that into context as well is first you start with what's worked before. Then you go to, if we were to pick a, pick one of these, are you able to get to one or the other, because those are not equivalent, right? So if not an option in many of our communities in, in Utah, because there's just simply not an outpatient treatment facility to provide that. So buprenorphine may really be your only option. But I wouldn't counsel somebody who is stably on methadone to switch, right? So the evidence and the, one of the things that we need to remember is that it was designed as a non-inferiority trial, right? So the, the way that that trial was actually designed was that while the relative risk was, was less, it was designed to show non-inferiority to methadone, which it did, right? So it absolutely established that buprenorphine is not inferior to, to methadone, but it doesn't establish superiority. And that I think is something that we have to really remember when we're counseling women. There are many other things. I go back to the nicotine, right? They're smoking. Let's work, let's work on smoking to decrease your now's risk versus switching you to buprenorphine. And then again, there's always the individualization. There are some women who are highly motivated and really, really, really want to switch from methadone to buprenorphine. We go through, you know, there's a there's a whole protocol for switching folks and, you know, decreasing the methadone dose and then starting the buprenorphine. But it's, you know, done with a ton of counseling. I've been peppering you with questions. This is my last one. What do you do as screening in your clinic for like intimate partner violence? This is high in pregnancy anyway, but in addiction medicine, it seems like, and maybe you know the statistics, but it seems even higher. These are just very vulnerable population. Several, several things. So we screen very frequently with, we use a HARC, we use the HARC instrument. And we do actually a, a, a screen where we're screening at least every trimester and then every, about every eight weeks in the postpartum period because things change. And we do a, a screening utilizing, we use an EPDS, an Edinburgh um, postpartum depression scale for, for depression. And we're using it not necessarily for screening solely. We use it also for symptomatology, looking at what are your depression symptoms and how high and low you are on on that on the EPDS. We also do a GAD7 for anxiety. We do a PTSD screening, so the PTSD-C, a HARC screening for intimate partner violence. I, we actually do a NIDA quick screen. And interestingly, we found that people really love being able to get to that year and to say, I finally get to say I haven't used 
in the past year that to them, they're like, I was so looking forward to getting to finally circle no use in the last year, which is, you know, that was an unexpected thing that we were like, wow, that's really great. And then we also do um, a mood disorder questionnaire to screen for bipolar symptoms. So that's a lot. I mean, that's a lot of screening that we do, but we do that at the first visit and then every trimester and in the postpartum period at minimum every 12 weeks, but uh, but we try to do it even more frequently. And, and the reason that we do that to your question about intimate partner violence is that it changes, right? So, and partners change. Right. So lots of people are like, well, you're with your baby daddy. And we're like, that's not, I mean, that's just like, that's, that's not the reality of many people's lives with or without addiction is that people's partners change. People may have a partner they may not have a partner. They may have a new partner. And so really assuming that because at their first prenatal visit, they check no, that that hasn't changed or that that hasn't, that they don't have a new partner. And so we, we do a lot of screening. We do a lot of talking about safety planning. If there is evidence of, um, intimate partner violence. And one of the things that has shown up in our screening is financial abuse. So it's not always emotional, right? So there's emotional, there's physical, there's sexual abuse, but financial abuse of withholding money for being, you know, withholding cash, withholding money, withholding the ability to meet your needs is one of the most frequent forms of abuse that we've we found in screening. And that was not until we um, did a, a project with three other sites, we included a financial abuse question that was actually the most frequent in, in our clinic and across the country um, forms of abuse abuse, the partner abuse that we had. Many, many things I can say, but don't forget about financial abuse. That is so interesting. I've actually listened to a podcast on that recently. You know what? You don't always see the physical signs of that. And so it can go much more hidden. That, so that's really good. That's a really good point. Thank you for that. What else? What haven't we covered? Return is particularly for um, pregnant and parenting women is DCFS, right? That this referral uh, to Child Protective Services is the... so. It, in the way that that kernel is, I don't want to harm my baby. The thing that pregnant and postpartum and parenting women want to know is what does this mean for DCFS and are you going to refer me? And even if they don't ask, saying it. So we will often say at the first visit, right? I want you to understand that because we, we want you to understand how we approach this and what are the laws and what are the regulations um, and what are our requirements and what also are, are things that we want you to approach DCFS with. So this will be Utah specific. Um, every So I'll start with providers need to understand their local, state, and the federal regulations. And so in Utah, and I don't, the podcast is probably larger than Utah, um, but I will, I will focus on Utah that there is a great resource. The Guttmacher Institute has a, a spreadsheet that they um, keep on their website on what the laws are in each state and whether um, this states consider um, substance use in pregnancy, child abuse, and who's a mandated reporter. And that is updated very frequently. But that's what's on the books, right? So the reality of how does your hospital approach the, and how does your clinic and how does your county and how does your state, it's very local and it's very regional. So knowing your approach, what I would say is once you have someone with substance use disorder, the thing that women are, or parents in general, right? It's not just women parents in general are terrified of is that their baby's going to get taken away. That is the question that they want to know. 
is my baby going to get taken away? Really, as a provider, you don't know the answer to that question, right? That's not a question that we as providers can can answer. So our counseling, and I'm going to tell you how we approach this, it doesn't mean that that is the right answer, but it is the way that we've come up with that is most successful for us thus far. We start by having a very clear conversation about what that is from the beginning, even if women don't ask that question, right? Because in the back of their minds, they want to know, is my baby going to get taken away if I'm disclosing all of this? And many women have reasons to not disclose, right? Because they've had bad experiences in the past. They've had children, other children, either they've had involvement, they themselves may have been involved as a child in child protective services and been removed from, because we know that substance use disorders are intergenerational. Really unpacking that and saying that in our clinic, we say, we cannot answer the question of, is your baby going to get taken away? That is reading the future. What we can tell you is that certainly in the state of Utah, we review the the statute and say, really, there has to be evidence of impairment of caring for self um, and a dependent other. And for us, that often means uncontrolled use in the third trimester, despite being, despite and with evidence that there is, you know, that they're not meeting some of their obligations to themselves or their goals. So we'll say, and, and it's never meant to be a punishment. It's always meant to be supportive, right? It's always meant to be, let's meet your parenting goals in the safest way that we possibly can. And that is the mechanism that we have available to us. Here in Utah, we are very lucky that our DCFS really strives to that and they understand that substance use disorder is a chronic condition. One thing that I think um, is variable around the country and increasingly recognition that medication for opioid use disorder is not replacing one addiction for another, right? And so we've seen judges, again, well-meaning people, but really um, not understanding that medication for opioid use disorder is medication for opioid use disorder, and that is being in treatment. It's the first line of treatment. And we've had cases where, you know, judges were telling women, you need to come off of your medication. And we're like, this is direct contradictory to what their medical advice is. And so really changing it from that policy level and really getting education at policy and at the judges and at court and at whether they're involved in drug court or family court, having that understanding be across all providers. But that's not the responsibility of the patient, right? That's a, that's the responsibility of the system to really be giving, ex, be giving evidence-based um, approaches from a patient perspective, we really stress that, you know, it's, it's about being in treatment and whatever is helpful for them and being in treatment and continuing the treatment. That uh, is what keeps families together. Right. And it's never, and that, and then there are very hard conversations that have to happen when people have severe substance use disorders and they really do have impairment of the ability to care for themselves and they are impaired to the point that they cannot care for a, a dependent other. And that is one of the hardest conversations to have, right? Because it, it, the easiest conversation is to be reassuring to somebody who's on Suboxone and is like, well, I heard that they take your baby away if you're on this, right? And at least in here, we can say that, that is the opposite of what is true, right? We really, and certainly, and that may have been true five years ago in the sense that there have been folks that may have gotten the message that they need to be off of their medication. But I think that that is really rapidly changing. For folks that have really uncontrolled substance use disorders, that that talking about that, that destabilization, talking about removal of custody of children is 
um, not meant to be punitive. It is truly meant to be safety planning and that there are some families that that really are not at this moment capable of taking care of a dependent other, but that doesn't mean they'll never be capable of taking care of a dependent other. And so you as the addiction provider, right, it's continued care because the the outcome is not the baby. The outcome is the family. It is the, the person who's in front of you and the baby and potentially the partner, right, who's in, in, involved as well. And so really you want to stress that removal is incredibly destabilizing and incredibly painful. And it is so traumatic for everybody involved and being and having conversations about that, having very difficult conversations. Sometimes people yell at you. I mean, can't tell you the names that I've been called when we, when we start to have that conversation. People will come back and say, you know, I was just, I'm just really scared. I want to be in treatment and I want to do this because I'm afraid of this. And it's, you're touching upon the most vulnerable thing that they're afraid of. And so knowing that those conversations are often really, really hard and they don't happen one, it's not one and done. That and there's no so easy true. way to do it. Honesty and understanding on the part of the provider, really knowing what your local landscape looks like so you can you can counsel people the most of, in the most effective way and getting in no understanding what does it look like at your hospital what does it look like in your county what does it look like in your state what does it look like and then we I think we also as providers have responsibility to advocate for evidence-based approaches and not punitive approaches yeah that's a really good fascinating and intriguing conversation and so so important so wow Thank you. I think there's so much more to learn. And can you point people in the direction if they want to learn more or be better versed? I mean, I can just think of referring people to your talks that you've given University of Utah Project Echo, Behavioral Health Echo, you've given a talk, several talks for them, and the Opioid Addiction and Pain Project Echo. But where else can they find out more good information on this topic, Marcella? So on the Opidemic website, the Utah Opidemic website, there's a specific page dedicated to maternal um, newborn care processes. The UINC, the Utah, see if I can get the acronym correct. Utah Women and Newborns um, Quality Care Collaborative is also known as UINC. There is a, um, a subcommittee for neonatal abstinence syndrome that has resources available there. Nationwide, the SAMHSA resources are, you can go on the SAMHSA website and look for you know, buprenorphine prescribers. There is a women and addiction listserv. It's now an official uh, subgroup of, what's the right word that I'm looking for? Official group of, of folks um, um, at ASAM. And so that's a an email listserv that uh, many of us belong to. Just pregnant, postpartum women, it's, it's women and addiction group, but asking questions and being able to get help with you know difficult, challenging situations. There are some regions where there are specifically um, dedicated clinics. So if you're, you know, if your podcast listeners are, are in Boston, there's um, a clinic at, at BU, there's um, a dedicated clinic in Seattle. So really no, the, the, the regional areas and happy to point people in the right direction. Thankfully, not thankful, right? We don't, it's a small enough group at this point that we can often point people to the right direction in their, um, in their region. But hopefully soon there'll be so many perinatal addiction specialists that it'll be easier to find through ASAM, but happy to help people if they're particularly interested. I think our, the fellowships, right? I do think that folks that have fellowship training, that now that there's fellowship training, a lot of the fellowships includes 
specifically OB specific training. And so getting it through that, through that path. But even if you're not going to do the uh, fellowship, if you have questions or have patients or um, pa- patient specific or really policy specific questions going through, you know, local, your local addiction provider might know. Right. Great. Those are awesome re- resources. Thank you. We have a listener who actually participated in Project Echo with us a few times, Marcella Farzad. Uh-huh. Camiar down in yep. um, Las Vegas in Nevada. So shout out to him because he specifically requested this episode and knew you'd be coming on. So, you know, thank you to him and thank you for coming on. And wow, you're just a wealth of knowledge. <laughs> like no, no notes, no, pe- no presentation. It just all comes out. It's just incredible. So amazing. Thank you so much. There's really so much to learn. And I think the most salient points to me, just to recap, are that women who continue to use substances in pregnancy really probably do have a substance use disorder because most women stop. They continue to use, especially after use 20, after week 20, you want to stop and think about what's going on. And then you said there's a big risk for returning to use in the postpartum period. So that's a very special and vulnerable time. And it sounds like that's why you continue your care and your clinic model for a year. So I think we should all look at that and think about how we're following our patients into that period of time, especially since parenting infants is so challenging, as you may well know. And then you said that addiction care in pregnancy is the same as addiction care in non-pregnancy. So that if there's one take-home message, maybe for me, that's it. Like same, carry on, keep on carrying on. Whatever you do for the non-pregnant human, think about doing it for the pregnant person. And um, especially in light of the harms of continued use for that person. So the harm harms of treatment probably do not outweigh the harms of continued use. And just a plug for, you know, using harm reduction methods and making sure your pregnant women have naloxone and these kinds of things. They're not immune to overdose and dying, just like Marcella said. Such a great point. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy that that's the number one. Co- I mean, that's just a shocking statistic that this is the number one reason why pregnant women are dying. And then the whole interesting conversation surrounding children and custody and drug use and giving people, you know, recognizing that people do get well. I think that's just, that's very interesting. So thank you so much. We really appreciate it. And I know our listeners will appreciate it. So thank you for your time. I know it's valuable and we will hopefully have you on another time for a more focused topic and we'll see you and we appreciate you in the community. We appreciate all you do for our patients, Marcella. Thank you for the invite. Happy to um, come back and always, I I have many opinions about this um, and thank you for what you do and for the addiction files and for what you each do in your communities and to listeners and and happy to continue conversation for anyone that's listening and has specific questions. And if you're really interested, I mean, again, that WAG group is is a great resource for being able to to ask questions of a nationwide. So it's got a nationwide participation and you can really get a lot of help with challenging things in in your area or not in your area. Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com.
content of the podcast are for entertainment and education purposes only. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from this source. As each person is unique, you're advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.